Amen, church. If you have your Bibles, if you'd open with me to Matthew chapter 16, we're going to continue to worship together as we open the Word of God together. And as we begin, I want to thank uh, Pastor Matt for his uh, leadership last week uh, while we were gone celebrating a birthday, our birthdays. Um, Beautiful text of Scripture last Sunday, beautiful challenge from that text for us to be together in what we believe in, in the gospel. And that's not something that we believe at one time only to quickly depart from. It's something that we, we believe all of the time. Um, we remember it, we receive it, we remain in that place, and we certainly rely upon the message of the gospel and the cross and all that we do. Or to say that differently, the, the cross is something we never graduate from it. We always stay in it, within it, underneath it if you will. So the past few weeks, we have sought the Lord, seen what his word, how his word calls us together in the life of the church. We've seen that we are together, and in that togetherness, there's unity, there's love, there's humility, there is the essence and being of of, of Christ, there is the truth of the gospel, and there is the reality of the church. As God calls us together, we live in that togetherness, for a particular purpose. And this is where we'll end today in Matthew chapter 16 and then transition over the next three weeks to consider what we have come together to do. So we've seen why we come together and then beginning next week, we will see what have we come together to do. What does the Bible call us together uh, to do? This morning we are together and we are intentionally together in the context of the local church, the body of Christ, the, the bride of Christ, that God himself sent his son to purchase and redeem. Matthew 16 will be in verses 13 through 20. We'll read it at the beginning and reference it throughout. If you'll follow along, I'll begin in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? In verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Verse 18, I I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Verse 20, then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Father, we ask in your grace this morning. God, in the truth of your word, by the power of your spirit, God, would you show us the the Christ who is ours? And also, Father, show us the power that is ours in the church, that you have given keys to the kingdom to, and trusted us with this particular task for this particular reason. So God, teach us, we pray. This morning, remind us of your goodness and grace to us and the truth of the gospel and the reality you've called us and you've called us to be together in the church. In Jesus' name, amen. 
a few introductory comments as we begin that I think will help frame our time together. A, a, a probably relatively familiar passage of Scripture, one that gives us some pillars, if you will, to understand and believe the truth of uh, the gospel, the reality of the Bible. And it begins here with this confession that Peter makes, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the first confession that we see in the gospel of Matthew. Jesus is both Christ. He is the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, and he is Lord, Lord of all. And it is the same confession that we share as New Testament believers, as gospel-centered believers, even still today. We share in this confession that Peter made all these many years ago. And it's important to note that it was Peter who said this. This is the passage of Scripture that we would argue and we would see in the truth of Scripture that, that, that our Catholic friends get a, a little off here because they would use this particular text to argue uh, that Peter was the first pope. Uh, but there's many challenges to this understanding and interpretation, a few that we'll hit today, um, not because we feel like we necessarily need, need to defend our position, because we believe biblically this position is particularly clear. And one very clear way we, we see this distinction is the difference between Peter and the word rock. Although they look similar in this particular verse, in the original Greek, they are two different words with two very different meanings. That Peter, the Greek word is Petros, he is, and the definition of that would be like a, a piece of gravel. It's a loose stone. And then when Jesus goes on to say, and on this rock, that's a completely different Greek word. That's the Greek word petra. That would be like limestone, a, a foundation, a mountain of stone, if you will. So he's saying that there's this loose stone and there's this big giant stone. And the big giant stone is what we believe, and we'll see just in a few minutes, how that is the truth of, of Christ. And, and the church is built on the reality of Christ, not the reality of a, a, a person or a, a pope. It's a second kind of distinction. The third is the reality that we see in this, that God's promise that we are his church and that he builds his church. The New Testament word for church is the term ecclesia. It's used to describe a, a gathering, a group of people, a, a, a community of people, if you will, who are called out by God for a particular task. So let, let's summarize it like this before we even begin, that God in Christ, he came to call an assembly, a people, an ecclesia, if you will. And this group of people, they, they share a common confession that Christ is Lord. And it's in that group of people, in that confession, the truth of that confession, that, that Jesus then promises that he will build his church. And so today, we stand as recipients of that reality through this confession that we share. And so it's ultimately what we would see in the next few minutes. It's this, this confession that Peter makes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that calls us together not just on October the 24th of 2021, but that historically, all throughout history, has called the New Testament church together around this confession of faith. And it's our confession that calls us together even in this moment. What we'll see now for the next few moments is how this confession is an unpopular confession. It's a personal confession. And thirdly, we will see that it is a powerful confession. Confession. Let's begin by going back to verses 13 through 15 and see this unpopular confession. This confession is made in the district of Caesarea Philippi. 
And Jesus asked his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Ends with this very personal connection, very personal question. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? This is taking place, and many of you have had the privilege of traveling to Israel uh, with a group from First Baptist Church. And so the idea or the location of Caesarea Philippi should kind of send a trigger in your mind if you've been over there. It's an area about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. Historically, the Caesarea Philippi is a, a place and historically was a place where it was the center for pagan worship throughout centuries. Throughout the course of time, Caesarea Philippi kind of became this place, became known for this place. It was a place that literally, when the disciples gathered here, they were surrounded by shrines. They were surrounded by idols. And it's in this place that Jesus chooses to call out this conversation among his disciples. You see, they were surrounded by the temptation of idol worship. And it's in this moment that Jesus looks into their heart and asks the question, who, who do all these people say that the Son of Man is? And, 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 and who do you say that I am? And so for us, there's almost a glimpse of hope here, right? Because I think oftentimes when we find ourselves surrounded by the darkness of the world or the idolatry of the world around us, that tends to make us depressed or sad or lonely or, or we just don't see how the light of Christ can shine into such darkness. But what we see here from the very beginning is that Jesus does not need to be alone to stand alone. So as Jesus is teaching, is modeling, is beginning the, the formation of the early church, the church does not require a lack of darkness or a lack of idolatry in the world around them to be the light of Christ. So for us, what we see here is that it was designed from the very beginning, the, the faith that we possess, the faith that we hold true, the confession that we share as Christians was designed to be unpopular within the lost world around us. So I would argue that you should feel the weight and tension of perhaps being the only non-Christian friends in some of the circles that you run in, some of the people that you spend time around, some of the ways in which you spend your hobbies. But I would argue that's the way God designed for it to be. The beauty of our confession is one that stands alone and stands out regardless of the world around them. It's not dependent upon the world around them. It stands out. You see, our confession is not dependent upon a, a moral majority, a political party, or even a certain economic system or structure. Our confession is rooted in the person of our confession. And it's in this reality that Jesus asked one of the most powerful questions in Scripture— one that I would argue your heart has to answer every single day of your life. Take that a step further. One that I would argue your heart has to answer every moment of every day of your life. And here's the question. Who do people say the Son of Man is? The Son of Man is this word used that Jesus describes himself throughout the Gospel of Matthew. He's literally asking, who, who do these crowds say that I am? I've walked these paths, I've performed these miracles, I've done these things, and I'm sure people are pretty captivated because these things are pretty cool, so therefore they got to think I'm pretty cool. But he didn't really come to be cool, he came to be Christ. And so the question that he asks is, who do these people 
say that I am? The disciples respond, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're, you're, you're maybe just another prophet who's come to, to tell us who God is and the way we need to live. And Jesus almost is like eliciting this dichotomy in their hearts. He's almost like fishing for it. Okay, that's great, but those people say that about me. Who do you say that I am? It's, it's great. This is the heart of the matter. You see, he's come to call a people to himself. And so it's a good and right question for you to consider, well, who do your coworkers say that I am? Who do your friends say that I am? And then for us to feel the weight and tension between that reality and then when he turns and looks in your heart, and ask you this question, and, and who do you say that I am? You see, he has always been about this contrast between the flesh and the faith. Because remember, God in Christ came to call a people together to share a common confession. And it was through that people and that confession that he is Lord that we receive the promise that he builds his church. But you see, the assembly that was gathered here in Matthew chapter 16 were united in the confession and the answer to the question, who do you say that I am? And it's been the answer to that question that has united the church all throughout church history. doesn't matter the age of church history. doesn't matter the culture of the world around the particular church or the particular movement of churches. What has marked the New Testament church is that we believe and we make this same confession when it's popular and when it's unpopular in the world around us, this is what we believe, and this is what we are going to give our lives to. There's an element here that Jesus didn't come, right, to win the popular vote when it comes to election time. Like, he didn't come for that. Like, he came as king, not to win the vote to be king. So he came as king, and his and praise God, like this is not dependent upon us or our popularity or the popularity of the church or his name or his work to occupy his throne. And yet he places within us, he gives us as the church this unpopular, if you will, confession that we are to live out in the world around us. Because you see, and we've seen it throughout church history, even now in places in the Middle East, that when culture or society is the darkest, maybe in that moment is when the light of Christ is meant to shine the brightest. It's the confession that we share. It's also a very personal confession. I love the way Jesus just elicits this from his followers. Look at verse 16 and 17. After the question, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You see, it was personal to his disciples. His disciples had walked this path with him. They'd seen him do all these things. They, they've been kind of in behind-the-scenes conversations, and they asked the question, but who do you say that I am? And, and, and the definitive answer, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. It's fitting 
Simon Peter would step up and be the self-appointed spokesperson for the group. If you've read the New Testament, you know that, that Peter kind of has a way of doing this throughout his ministry. That he oftentimes maybe is a little too bold, a little too crass, a little too aggressive in some of his antics throughout the Gospels. But in this moment, he gets it. And there's no shutting him up. I would argue that there's times in our faithful witness in the world around us when we get it and we don't need to be shut up. Like Peter knew the tension of this, the balance of this, the, what this confession would require of him. And yet Peter, almost without thinking, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Like I wonder, just thinking through this in my own heart and my own life, like what avenues or, or situations or environments in my own life, do I need to think a little bit less and confess a little bit more? Like, in what ways am I a little burdened by what people might think of this confession or how people might change the way they think of me if I'm too bold with this message? And Peter kind of gives us a model here, like, no, 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 our boldness is in the truth of this message, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In this confession, what Peter pulls together is this, that, that Christ sits enthroned in Israel. He is saying that he is Messiah. He is the promised one. That's not all he's saying. You are the Christ, comma, the son of the living God. That He was the promised Messiah, but he is also the son of the living God. So he sits enthroned in Israel, and he sits enthroned in the universe as the son of the living God and the only response to this truth is for him to sit enthroned into your own heart and your own life. It's a personal confession that we share as Christians. It's not something your mama can give you. It's not something your daddy bought for you. It is a personal confession that you must share that he is prophet, priest, and king. He is the son of the living God. And don't forget where Jesus took them and where Jesus brought them to make this confession. Literally, surrounded by idols. They look their Savior in the face and they say, you're the one, the only one, Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then look at this blessing that Jesus then gives you. Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But my father has been working within you, Peter. He's saying, you were not wowed by all my miracles. You're not wowed by all the things that I've done for the people all around you. You see, you came to this revelation. You came to this confession because God, my father, is doing something within you. It's the same way that you came to this confession. You didn't, weren't wowed by all the things that Jesus could do for you. It's not some name it and claim it prosperity gospel that we share. We don't come to Jesus just wanting his blessings. We come to Jesus wanting him. And that's what Jesus says to you. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjon. He gives his full name. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because my father has been working within you. It's a great reminder that we see. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 that he who began a good work in you will carry it on until the day of completion. See, Jesus saw something in Peter's heart. 
in the heart of his disciples, saying, yes, my Father is at work within you. That's the only way that you can make this personal confession. And you see, it is this same personal confession that is our invitation into the faith. You were here a few weeks ago when we had the privilege of, of baptizing those three young men. You remember the questions that we were asking them, right? The question that Pastor Matt asked them, do you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Same confession. You were baptized into that same confession. And we invite, and in, in, in our new members' classes, that's one of the main things that we try to do and filter and ask the right questions, because we need to know the people that are joining this church have joined this same confession of faith, that Christ is Lord and he's Lord of all. That's what brings us together as a New Testament church. Not a location, not a style, not a history, not a future. The confession that Christ is Lord. But do you share in this personal confession? Can you make this personal confession that God sent his son into the world and he was born of a virgin and he lived his life here on the earth without sin and yet he was crucified on the cross. And on his death on the cross, he paid the penalty for your sin for forever. And three days later, after he had been buried, he rose from the grave to not just defeat the penalty of sin, but to defeat the power of sin. And the beauty for us is this. The promise of Scripture is that anyone who calls upon the name of the who? Lord shall be saved. You see, it's the invitation to join in this confession. This invitation is free for you today. You can make this same confession today because you see this personal confession is what God uses to to bring the church together and to show us the demonstrated power that is ours because of this confession. Look at verses 18 through 20. Jesus says, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you The keys of the kingdom of heaven, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Verse 20, then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. He says, you are are Peter, you are Petros, and on this rock, on this Petra, I will build my church. On this rock, what, what is he talking about here? What rock is he talking about? It's not merely the confession of Christ, although that's true, In its totality, he's saying that the foundation of all of this is Christ. Captured well in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. That we are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So it's the invitation to Peter that you come and you give your life. Build your life on the rock of my foundation, that Christ is the cornerstone and he is a firm foundation for us. And look at the power here that is ours in Christ. It's the promise. I will build my church, is what Jesus said. And for us, what a great sigh of relief that is. You see, the temptation for us is we think way too highly of ourselves, of our ideas, of our programs, 
our ministries, our unique ways of doing things as if we have something to offer God. But you see the promise here? It's like, no, no, like on the rock, on the foundation of Jesus is where I will build my church. And so the pastoral work, really, the work to which I have been called, that we have been called as a church, is to take the truth of God's word by the power of God's spirit and unite the body of Christ together as those things, as true foundation for us, and trust him to build it. So we gather each week to, to sing of the richness of the gospel. We gather each week to pray together, to obey the Bible together, to learn the Bible together, to preach the Bible. We do that, and yet in the very core of that, we are trusting God to build. So we pray, we sing, we give, we go, we obey, and God builds. And what happens when God builds? He says the, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Oh God, that we would understand the truth of this statement. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ knows nothing and will never know anything of death. <laughs> Do you realize the good news that is ours in Christ Jesus? That he has given this to us and the promise is he will build it and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That we, listen, we, will never taste death. 1 Corinthians 15 captures this well. It says, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of sin is death, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the power of this confession that we have is that we will never taste death. Death has been defeated. And the gates of hell are not a match for the living church of God. Oh, that we would live with that kind of victory. Oh, that we could understand that kind of power. It's a important reminder. Like, think about this. If you have a fence, is a gate an offensive or a defensive weapon? says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Like if someone is breaking into your house, you're not going to run outside and rip the gate off of its hinges and come inside and fight with it. No. A gate is a defensive weapon designed to keep people out. So what then is our offensive weapon? In the Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. So the picture here is that we are fighting a spiritual war with the sword of the Spirit. And this is where we might have missed it a little bit, I think, throughout church history. That literally what we're doing is we're charging the gates of hell. And, and what this text is saying is like the gates of hell cannot keep the gospel out. We have this truth within us. And the promise of Scripture and the power of the word. Like if we take this truth of the gospel, that there is nothing that will stand against us. Not life, not death, not hell, not addiction, not death, not family drama, not sin, not political upheaval. 
Not inequality, not anything that man can do can stand in your way. So therefore, we do not shrink back in fear. We stand in faith. Why? Because we're the church of the living God. God, help us. Now, we've lost sight of the power that is ours in Christ. You see, God is building his church, and the gates of hell cannot and will not stand against it. Tell the promise that we have as followers of Jesus. But listen, it's not just a future tense promise. Right now, what does he say? He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. You, Peter, one of the original capital A apostles. The apostles served many purposes. One of the main purposes of the capital A apostles was to plant, start the New Testament church that we see and that we know throughout the New Testament. And what Jesus says and is doing here, he is literally giving the keys of the kingdom to the church. The idea behind, in the original Greek, of keys is similar language to the task that was entrusted to Old Testament scribes. And so what Jesus is saying here is he is giving to the church the same tasks that he gave to the Old Testament scribes. And what were they primarily responsible for? Primarily responsible for the word of God. So what is the primary thing that God has given to the New Testament church? He hasn't given us a trendy way to do ministry. He hasn't given us a countercultural new idea. He has given us what has been sufficient from the beginning of time, and that is the truth of God's word. He said, this is how. This is how you're going to accomplish my work. And here you are. Here's the keys to it. The keys are always connected to the word of God. And with that comes a great sense of authority. And, and I know authority is a hard word in our culture, and it's even a hard word in, in churches sometimes because we've seen authority misused and abused, and we see it oftentimes more unhealthy than it is healthy. But the reality is this, that we can't compromise the truth of Scripture just because the world is broken. Just because church is messed up sometimes doesn't change the Word of God. So the task that has been given, the New Testament church, is a task given to us with authority that we have been given keys to the kingdom, to the word. And with that comes responsibility. Last weekend when Amy and I were out of town, we uh, paid a a painter to come in and and, and do a couple things in our house, our never-ending list of house projects. I'm sure some of you can relate. Um, So we were out of town. So how does a painter get in and out of your house when you're out of town? Well, we gave them keys to our house. They had a job to do, and we wanted them the freedom to come and go and paint and do their thing. Because when we came home, we wanted a nicely painted entry hall and living room. And the only way for that to happen was for them to have a certain level of responsibility and trusting to them the keys. We didn't give them the deed to our house. We gave them keys to our house. God does not give us the deed to the church. He gives us the keys to the church. He's given to us, entrusted to us, a certain level of responsibility. And it's not ownership, it's stewardship. And that's the call of our hearts, that he is, this is his church, we are his bride. But in this season, for this purpose, we've been entrusted with the keys to steward this well that we have a particular authority. And with that authority, there are eternal implications. Look at what Jesus says here. 
Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. You see, this is the work to which we're called. Like what we do has eternal implications. Like we don't just twiddle our thumbs for six days a week and show up again next Sunday seeing whatever the pastors put together for us this week. No, no, no. Like every single thing that we do, every moment of your life, every thing on your to-do list, every appointment in your calendar, every piece of our worship service, all of these things has eternal implications. Because with this stewardship, with this authority, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. You see, there's power there. You see, we don't shy away from it. We don't run towards it. We embrace it. We are a, a painter. That God has given us a task to do, to make disciples of all nations. He's given us the keys of the house to do it within. And one day when our task is done, when our work is finished, he'll call us home to be with Jesus and we'll turn in our keys that God gave us for this short amount of time here on the earth and our, our testimony that we hope we hear before the Lord is what? Well done, good and faithful servant. What do we do with this confession that he has given to us in the church. You see, it's our confession that calls us together. That God in Christ came to call an assembly, call a gathering, call a people that share a confession that Christ is Lord. And God somehow in his sovereign mind takes that together and in his beauty and infinite plan uses that to build his church. There's a lot to weigh and balance in this text, but let's consider just for a moment how Peter understood this. First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. Peter writes, same Peter that we see here in this Matthew 16. As you come to him, Peter writes, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, Verse 6, for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion, capital Z, a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You see, Peter understood that he was Petras, and he was to take his meager, old, ugly, small piece of gravel, as insignificant and as small as it might seem to him, it played a significant role in the kingdom of God. And so Peter understood that he was to take his little stone and lay it upon the foundation and the cornerstone of Christ our Lord, the one who has chosen and precious. Because in that moment and in that act, the promise of Scripture that whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You see, our confession of Christ calls us to lay our stones on Christ, who is our cornerstone. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So the confession we share as a church that binds us together as a church is that Christ is Lord. And if you have not made that profession your confession, you can do so this morning 
by calling upon the name of the Lord. And the promise of Scripture is that in that moment, you will be saved. So for us who have made that, that shared confession brings us joy. That shared confession brings us hope. And that hope is that God will build his church. When we can't see it, when we can't understand it, when all the metrics seem off and we don't know what to do next, we rest on the promise of God that he will build his church. Not just for my lifetime, not just for your lifetime, but for all eternity because the promise is this, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of the living Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So because that's true, God's called you. When you made that confession, he's called you. And he's given you the keys of the Great Commission. As a part of this church, this local body, this assembly, this ecclesia, he has entrusted to us the keys of the kingdom. The kingdom, the call that we see in the Great Commission that you are to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And because we're humans, yes, we'll never taste death as New Testament Christians, but because we're human, we have this timeline that we're working on. And then one day, our, our, our time will be done. We'll run out of breath. Our, our heart will run out of beats. And we'll go and we'll stand before Jesus. And then what we long to hear is that well done, good and faithful servant. I'd argue that in that, he's going to see like your confession that you made of me, how'd that affect your life? Could anyone tell in your nine to five job? What about your neighborhood? Was this a personal, private thing you didn't want to tell anybody about? Was this something that you stewarded well? What about in your retirement? Did you give your retirement to make this confession known? Would you spend your retirement on yourself, gathering up as many things as you could before he called you home? You see, there are keys that we've been entrusted with, keys to the kingdom. That whatever we bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever we loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Why? Because God's doing this work. He's been doing it throughout all history. So what we need to do is New Testament church, First Baptist Rocky Mount, we need to guard ourselves from two temptations. One, thinking we're too important, and one, thinking that we're not important enough. That we're too important, we think the world revolves around us, that our way of doing things is super special, and we've got it figured out. And the other temptation is to think we're nothing, and that we're nothing, just much a group of people that gather together every seven days to make ourselves feel good about each other. That's not true. Like in this weight and in this tension, God has rallied us together. He has bound us together as First Baptist Church of Rocky Mount, and he's entrusted to us this task. And our responsibility is to go and take and live and obey faithfully. We're going to conclude our service today by the Lord's Supper. Interesting twist in where we are in light of this series. Pretty powerful reminder of the text of Scripture that we see today that Lord's Supper is an opportunity for us to remember the sacrifice on the cross that made this confession possible. You realize if his body was not broken for you, his blood was not shed for you, there would be no confession for us to make. So in essence, this is a 
substance. This is the sustenance of the church. This is who we are. The foundation of what we believe, that on the cross, the body of Jesus was broken and his blood was shed so that you could call out to the Lord. So that your sins could be forgiven. You could be free. And so that the confession of Christ as Lord would ring true for all eternity. So you see, what we gather around and partake in this morning is not just a historical act for a history book. No, 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 this is an eternal act. An eternal way for us to remember the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for us. It's the foundation of our faith on which our confession that the Christ is Lord is rooted and grounded. So as we prepare to do that and distribute that this morning, Scripture gives us clear commands on both who can partake of the Lord's Supper and how we are to partake of the Lord's Supper. So we, as a church, we want to invite anyone who has confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. If you share that confession, you are welcome to participate with us this morning. Scripture also warns about partaking in an unacceptable manner. So if there's sin that you need to confess of, if there's wrong in your heart and your life that you need to make right before you partake of the Lord's Supper, there'll be a time as we pass and distribute for you to pause and reflect and actively pursue right relationship with God. Because in this time, we remember how much our sin cost our Savior and how much love he has demonstrated for us and towards us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's what we do. It's what we remember as we partake of the Lord's Supper together. As I pray in just a moment, the deacons are going to come forward and we will distribute the elements to you. As they are distributed, you'll hear music playing softly in the background. And we want to encourage you to use this time to actively remember, not passively remember, but actively remember and reflect upon the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for you. This is not a time for you to reflect upon the sins of the world. This is not a time for you to reflect on the number of people that have hurt you or harmed you. This is a time for you to reflect upon your sin that cost your Savior his life. It's time for you introspectively to think, reflect, and remember. And through which, in this reality, we are forgiven and can confess that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Would you pray with me as our deacons come forward? Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. Father, we we thank you for the confession of faith that we did not earn, but God, that was purchased for us by the body of Christ that was broken for us and the blood of Christ that was shed for us. And Lord Jesus, we today want to, to stop and pause and remember and reflect upon our own sin that separated us from God. But God, in your perfect plan and perfect love for us, you sent your Son, whose body was broken and whose blood was shed so that we could be forgiven and free and live in right relationship with you. And so, Lord Jesus, over these next few moments, I pray that those gathered this morning would actively remember and reflect upon the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And God, whatever repentance needs to look like in our hearts and lives, God, would you work towards that end? Because it's why your son came. So, Lord Jesus, be honored and glorified 
as we, your people, gather over the next few moments to eat, partake, remember, reflect, confess, and forgive. In Jesus' name, amen.